to yet another episode of Global.Science. I am Lev Kordisky. And I'm Fabia Battistuzzi. So the inane question for the day today is, have you ever been in an earthquake? Actually, I have. It was a little one, very gentle. Actually, there were a couple. One, I was a little kid in Rome. And, and I'm you fell out of bed? Well, almost, but I'm not completely sure if it was actually real or if I just dreamt about it. So that doesn't count. But then I did feel an earthquake when I was in Arizona and the earthquake was actually far, far away, was close to San Diego. And I remember feeling the couch shifting a little bit and the blinds were shifting a little bit. So it wasn't, you know, anything major, but, but I remember feeling it. It was interesting. How did you feel? I'm actually confused. I think my inner ear, the sense of equilibrium in my inner ear perceived that that was a weird movement and he was not expecting it because it gave me a sense of just not being able to stand up, even though it was very, very gentle. Was I in the house for that one? It sounds kind of familiar. Yep. Okay. We're both in the house. Okay, yes, I forgot about that until you mentioned it, because I did feel one in a pretty strong one in Arizona. It originated up near the Sedona region, and my project, I felt the house shake really quickly, and I saw my projector screen wave, and I thought there had been like an explosion on the highway next door, um, <laughs> and it took me a while to figure out that it was an earthquake, so it was so fast. Um, but other than that, some of the big ones that I felt recently was when I was working in Indonesia. One woke me up in the middle of the night. Um, and I was hoping the apartment I was in would not collapse because it was new construction. So <laughs> it was just a gentle one. And I, and I may have been woken up by a few of them. Um, but the ones I remember distinctly was when I was in the Virgin Islands. because That was close to um, some tectonic boundaries there. And I think the there was one I remember that um, it was, it, it took me a while to figure out it was an earthquake. The second time though, I heard my hosts upstairs, they were having a get together with some friends and I heard one of my hosts uh, yell out earthquake. I was like, earthquake, how does she know? And I didn't hear anything, but then I felt it. So she heard something. And I think the third time I felt an earthquake, I actually did hear it coming. It sounded like, it was coming from all around me and it was coming from the ground. It was coming from the uh, Southeast and it was approaching. And I, I think we were actually on a video call at the time. I said, I think there's an earthquake coming. And do you remember what you told me? No. I, I think you told me you should get out of the house. And I was like, oh, that's probably a good idea. Oh, well, I'm always full of great advice that you never take. So there you go. <laughs> yes, I, I did get out of the house. It was just a little one, but I, I was, I was astonished how different each one felt that it was just a sudden, sometimes it was a sudden jolt. And that time it was, I could hear the whole ground surrounding me and it approaching me before it kind of passed through me. It was kind of neat. And I think that probably is connected to the fact that, you know, usually stories say that animals can feel earthquakes uh, before they actually happen, probably because they are they sort of feel these different kinds of vibrations and they get scared by them. And so they, they move away. That, that wouldn't be so surprising. I'm wondering if Bali, the house cat, was there lounging completely ignorant to anything because all he cared about was getting petted. 
<laughs> Most likely. <laughs> yes. So I think this is a good segue to introduce our guest today, Dr. Maus Roish. She is the Shake Alert Coordinator for the Pacific Northwest Seismic Network, and she's affiliated with the University of Washington. Now I need to catch my breath because that's a long title. So <laughs> welcome to the show, Maus. How are you? Good, good. Thank you guys for having me. So have you ever felt an earthquake? I have actually. Um, not as many as, as most people would think. You know, they feel like if you study earthquakes or you work in seismology, well, you must have grown up along the San Andreas Fault or something exciting and life-changing like that. But uh, I didn't feel an earthquake until 2010, actually. When I was in my 30s and I was in Chile, actually, after the Maule earthquake. And... It was very exciting. I felt just lots of little ones where the house would kind of pop and shake. The more exciting event happened when I was in New Zealand on Valentine's Day 2016, which is about five years after the Christchurch, the very big Christchurch earthquake. And we had just checked into a hostel and we're in the little living room area because our room wasn't open yet. And suddenly everything started shaking and the pictures on the wall started rattling. Ooh. And we're, you know, there's three of us in the room and I'm looking around and, and supposed to uh, get under something to protect yourself. And there's just this low coffee table. And I'm like, I don't think I could sit under there. <laughs> and of course the shaking feels like it goes on forever, but it was probably just 10 seconds or something. And then it stopped. It was, you know, open up the laptop, get online, and how big was that earthquake? And then you turn into a scientist immediately, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I filled out my did you feel it reports and uh, was excited. Like, we felt an earthquake. So earthquakes are something that I think gets a lot of interest from the public. So, um, so what exactly uh, is a shake alert? Um, you're talking a little bit about what that program does and what your responsibilities are for it. So what is shake alert? Shake alert is a specific name for the program in the United States that is earthquake early warning. And Earthquake early warning itself is just a notification system that they've had in, you know, they had a version of this in Mexico for a couple decades and there it's going live in other parts of the, the world also, but basically an earthquake has started somewhere. Instruments have picked it up and have reported it and then computers have done some quick, really fast modeling and sent out messages that you might feel shaking soon with the idea being that people can take some sort of protective action, but then also cool stuff can happen like automated, automatic um, solutions like water valves can be turned off to protect the water supply, elevator doors can, you know, elevators can stop on a floor and open. One of my favorite examples is the BART train, the Bay Area Rapid Transit in San Francisco can, if a shake alert is issued and there might be shaking coming, it, the train slows down, 
And then if there is an earthquake, it just stays stopped and there's a, it reduces the risk of uh, derailment immensely. And if there's not an earthquake, then it just starts speeding up and keeps on going. A lot of it is about preventing injuries and you know, helping things to run again after an earthquake. So how much lead time there is between the shake alert the message and the actual shake if it happens? Are we talking seconds, minutes, or longer? Not longer for sure, because the, uh, it all has to do with how close you are to the initiation point of the earthquake. And if you are right on top of, let's say, the San Andreas Fault, in California, then it's possible you may have no warning because you've felt the shaking before the instrumentation, the seismometers can even pick it up. We've done some, some kind of modeling and say, uh, looking at an earthquake that happened here in the Seattle region in 2001, the Nisqually earthquake, which was a deep earthquake about 50 kilometers below the surface. And if ShakeAlert had been running at that time, we estimate that people in Seattle around the University of Washington area would probably get about 16 seconds of warning, which is a, a nice comfy cushion. For a very large offshore event, people might get up to a minute of notice, wow. which can make a big difference. So what are, when you're dealing with the public, um, are there some common misconceptions that uh, people have about earthquakes? Because you have this early warning system and I think it's better than it was a few uh, decades ago with the, I, I remember learning as a kid that earthquakes are essentially unpredictable. They're kind of like tornadoes. They just show up randomly and then run for your life, but it's probably already too late. Um, I think the state of the art is slightly better, but have you found that that has percolated the, men, uh, the public imagination yet or not so much? Well, it's, you chose a very interesting analogy there with, with tornadoes because while an earthquake can happen absolutely out of the blue, if you're, especially if you're near a fault zone, but even away from fault zones, we sometimes have surprise earthquakes. With a tornado, you have, you have to have at least a storm going on. And then with modern weather forecasting technology, they can usually say, there's a really good chance that there may be tornadoes. You'll have tornado warning or tornado watches. It might not happen and it might only hit the house across the street from you and not your house, but I think that's very different from the potential for an earthquake, which, you know, it's people sometimes, the press sometimes ask me, well, when are we going to have the big one? And sometimes I say, oh, tomorrow <laughs> or 500 years from now. We don't, we don't know for sure. And the probability is about the same either way. I think the public loves well, they, they want to be reassured though. And so I think something that we've been struggling with with the public these days is, is trying to let them know that this is not a new technology. We're not predicting earthquakes. Um, so we can't give you 30 minutes, two days, you know, next month there's gonna be an earthquake. 
the event has to have already started. And it's just because of having lots of instrumentations out there, instrumentation out there collecting data. And then thankfully the speed of light, you know, the speed of communications is faster than seismic waves that that information can get you know, to computers and then get out to people's phones or their computers faster than the shaking can hopefully. I wish we could predict earthquakes, but we can't. And that brings up an interesting, I think, anecdote because uh, Fabian, in Italy, there was a case where, um, was it a city or people sued uh, geologists for not predicting, I think it was the L'Aquila earthquake in the yeah, early the, 2000s? There was a very large earthquake that hit um, an area in Italy that is prone to earthquake, all of Italy is prone to earthquake just because of the nature of where it is. Um, but this particular area has a history of earthquakes and uh, a particularly big one happened in the early 2000s and kind of destroyed, basically leveled a few villages and um, a, a, a bunch of people uh, unfortunately died. Um, and, uh, and yeah, the geologists were uh, actually accused of basically not being, not having alerted the public that this was going to happen. And we just heard from Mouse that that is kind of absurd because things cannot be predicted. Earthquakes cannot be predicted. But yeah, it, it, was, it was a big story and it, it had a... Um, um, it had a lot of ripples within the scientific community, uh, within and outside of Italy, because scientists understand that those accusations made no sense, but the public didn't. The public did not understand that. Um, and they thought that, well, you know, geologists that are studying earthquakes, that's their job. How come they didn't do their job? That was the, um, the feeling, unfortunately. So Miles, how do you communicate like uncertainty? Because uncertainty is a big part of science and it's especially a big part of earthquake, um, earthquake detection, earthquake prediction. Um, and it's something that the public often doesn't understand where you mentioned that um, the big one can happen tomorrow, it can happen 500 years from now and probability is the same. So how do you deal with communicating that uncertainty so that people understand that there's limits to what we can do. Uh, that's really tricky. It's a good question, Lev. And I think one basic tenet to successful, you know, conversations about uncertainty is just honesty and letting the public know that we don't know everything and then trying to present, well, this is what we do know. And you know, maybe these are the, the patterns that we can pull from this data, but of course we don't, you know, the history of, with earthquakes specifically, the history of the plates and the San Andreas Fault, for example, is very long and we only have a very small amount of data from there. So by trying to show honestly kind of the range of, you know, the data that we do have, the examples and, you know, for example, the recurrence interval, say, well, was, yes, it was on average, 335 years between you know, mega, mega thrust subductions and events, 
in Cascadia, the interval has gone anywhere from 100 years to 632. And just basically reiterating that, you know, these are our best, our best forecasts. And as I said, being honest about the things that we don't know. And I think that brings up uh, uh, a point that sort of came up uh, and it kind of keeps coming up when we talk about science communication is in a sense the, the importance of trying to um, ensure that the public understands that it's, it's okay to not know. Um, I mean, ideally we would love to know everything. We don't we do the best we can uh, and we all have to become comfortable with the idea that there are certain things that we cannot know ahead of time and we cannot predict and this nobody's fault right the, the issue is that in the human reaction when something bad happens is that they want to accuse somebody something must be a fault and sometimes that just doesn't happen and the public often is not comfortable with that but it's uh, it's it's a reality of it's a reality of everybody's life, I guess. <laughs> so, um, how do you communicate with the? Uh, um, which groups do you uh, communicate with that you find most interesting to work with uh, when you communicate these types of uh, hazards? I love I love actually interacting with with anyone in the public because it's it's just really enjoyable. But some of the best and most thoughtful questions come from, from any talks that I've done at senior centers or retirement homes because the, I think it's some of it is the knowledge and the memories in people's heads that then they, they kind of think a little bit more about what I'm saying. And then the questions that they come up with are really thoughtful, sometimes based on their own personal experiences and sometimes based on just you know, what they what they have heard from their other family members or from the news, and I find those to be really stimulating conversations. So, did you find do you find it um, in a sense difficult to establish a, a connection with the um, with the senior? Uh, sci uh, with the, with this, our senior population uh, compared, for example, to kids, you know, with kids is a little bit easier. They are in school, the schools do field trips, you know, that kind of stuff with the uh, senior population or adult population is a little bit more difficult, right? Everybody has their own life. They are, you know, sometimes busy, sometimes a little isolated. Um, do you, do you think that, you know, communicating science at the level of something that everybody experiences like earthquakes is a good way of sort of engaging with the public? I do, I do. I think it's something that affects people regardless of age, income, you know, sometimes where you live or how you live and it's kind of like an equalizer. And so I think more people are, are interested and, and they wanna demystify you know, the, the unexplainable at times. And, you know, we do our best. I will say that perhaps I've been very spoiled in, in all of the, a lot of the talks that I give, people have actually chosen to be there. 
So Mm -hmm. it's definitely easier to engage in people when they're there by their own free will. But they always just seem so so full of wonderful questions and, and discussions. Now you mentioned that uh, you you work primarily with people who want to be there and want and want to learn. Um, do you ever work with populations that uh, don't show that initiative in learning about these hazards, but that need to know? Is do you have mechanisms? For working with populations that may not necessarily be engaged in some of these hazards, but really, really need to know about them. We try to, to cast a wide net of, of information out there. We have, besides public speaking, we have you know, posts on social media, different social media channels. We have YouTube videos for people who maybe can't you know, go to a live or timed presentation, they can watch it when they need to. We often do kind of letters to the editors or, or are quoted in newspapers or, or in the news. You know, so people who get information from different, different avenues um, can, can learn some of this information or be exposed to it at least. But it's, it's hard. It's, I've, I've heard accounts of people in California, where there is Shake Alert has an official app in California called MyShake. And it is highly publicized in the newspaper. Uh, California Office of Emergency Services has taken out ads and tried to publicize it. And there were individuals, even in the US Geological Survey, who had never heard of it. And so it is tricky, you know, how do we, how do people hear about things? And it's, it's definitely a very wide number of options. And we just try to cast as wide a net as we can. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that you mentioned that Shake Alert is based, um, or at least the purpose is similar to a system that was present in Mexico. Uh, decades ago. So obviously different countries have different levels of risk uh, in terms of earthquakes. Um, Do you find that there is a good international network and communication about this? Uh, Do you personally do any work in in other countries? Every country, there's a lot of sharing of information a lot of, of countries who are, shake, earthquake early warning is, is still very new for many countries and it, and it still doesn't exist in, in that many. Um, so there's definitely been learning and you know, we of course communicate with the agencies involved in Mexico and, and then learn from what worked and what didn't work. Um, Japan of course is another excellent example of, of earthquake early warning that's been around for quite a while and but it's definitely no unified system that has the potential to change a little bit because Google with the Android system has actually built into the operating system earthquake early warning and it has gone live in several countries already including the western part of the United States and so here you have a mechanism that people all over the world have access to that could 
revolutionize the earthquake early warning. Um, but it's also kind of a new thing, and we're still, you know, us in the, the shake alert who've been around for the, you know, the years and years of, of testing and, and maybe alerts that weren't correct in the test system. And, and so we're kind of watching the, the Android system and, and going, okay, is, is this going to work? Is this something that can be used more widely and with knowledge that it will be accurate? So a very um, self-serving question. Does Italy have one? And would and if not, would you like to establish one for us? <laughs> I don't believe Italy has active earthquake early warning. I'm sure they're working on it. And I would definitely love to come to Italy and, and work on it with you, Fabia, as long as I don't have to drive in Rome. <laughs> okay, I'll do the driving. <laughs> Don't let her do that, Deal. it's terrifying. <laughs> so um, I, I like that you brought up that there are these unconventional ways of getting some of this data. I, I'm not sure I was aware that, I may have heard about it before where, I may have heard about it in passing that Android is doing some earthquake detection. I know that Google, uh, has been used uh, to detect bad flu seasons by looking at, by mining the um, uh, searches for flu symptoms and during very bad flu seasons, uh, the searches for those types of, uh, for those kinds of symptoms and for flu tend to spike. What do you think are the prospects of uh, Google and Android getting it right for earthquake warnings so that it could become this global networks. We already kind of use phones for traffic detection. Yes. Um, definitely one way to get a whole lot of instrumentation out there in all kinds of places. Um, I think there's a good, I think they'll do an adequate job for sure. I am have not followed this in depth because of course I'm I'm feel like I'm buried in you know the, the shake alert rollout here in Washington and Oregon. But I do recall in the news that there was an earthquake offshore New Zealand that they so offshore, offshore things are always challenging to get um, because we don't have data coming from offshores and there's certainly no cell phones offshore. <laughs> But um, they, they didn't do a, a great job with locating this earthquake or with the magnitude of the earthquake. But I think it'll improve. I think you know, they'll, they'll learn from what worked and what didn't work and some aspect of better algorithms and maybe some machine learning. And I, I think it will at least do an adequate job. I think it's going to be interesting to see how machine learning comes into play into all of this because it's kind of like what happens almost in every field at this point, you know, internet of things and all these kind of different large, um, they're not even large, they're humongous data sets that right now we, we have the ability to collect what we lack ability of is to understand the patterns within them and understand them quickly enough for us to do something about it. And so it's going to be interesting to see if, uh, if machine learning and potentially AI can, uh, can help us. 
Have you done any work with uh, machine learning and AI or has any, um, has there been a lot of work done in machine learning and AI and earthquake detection that um, the public might be interested in, especially the new generation? Because I know all of my students are putting on machine learning and AI on their resumes of something they're studying. And then um, we'll see what they actually do when they get on the projects. But uh, it, it's curious how big of a field it's become and how much of a draw it has become for students. Yeah, it's, it's definitely an, an evolving frontier of, of science. And, and then as we just get more and more data from everywhere, um, as far as things that the public could, you would, would find interesting yet, I'm, I'm not sure. There's been, there's some, been some theoretical work or, or uh, uh, well, theoretical, but then also using modeling the, um, do you remember the triaxial press in Chris Marone's lab where they would squish rock or pasta to watch stuff break and cracks form? And they've taken some of that and, and run, you know, run it with models and, and trying to see, okay, well, what precipitates, you know, what starts the earthquake? And I think that has, has some potential to be, you know, informative, but it's still, you know, in a, a small compact area when we're talking about a megathrust earthquake that will be you know, a thousand kilometers of breakage along a fault. I mean, this is, and they, do they accurately scale from one to the other? Very interesting. Well, um, I think that brings us to the end of the questions we have for you. Um, thank you so much for your time and talking about earthquake detection um, and the work that you do, especially in keeping the public informed. I think it's really important work. Thank you. I think it was wonderful talking to both of you. Thank you, Mouse. Right. Thanks, Fabia. Ciao. So, Fabia, what did you learn today? Well, I learned that I think what Mouse does, and everybody who does earthquake detection kind of uh, research is probably much more applicable than what I do in my life. <laughs> so it's good that there are people that are actually thinking about the well-being of us humans all day long. <laughs> so but I think it's curious, I think, especially the discussion on uncertainty, because we're having a side uh, conversation in the chat about the uh, like earthquake where uh, what happened, um, what Moss was filling us in on it in the chat was that uh, the scientists have said that the, there will be no earthquake. I'm assuming that it was probably in reaction to people that were afraid of something and it was trying to give them a uh, reassurance that wasn't, uh, that wasn't merited by what happened. So it, it's a little more complex than they were um, prosecuted for not predicting the earthquake. Um, but it could have just as easily have happened that it said there's nothing to fear and there really wouldn't have been enough, there wouldn't have been anything to fear, but that time there wasn't. So I think I like the discussion that we had on uncertainty because it's something that the public really isn't comfortable dealing with. We want certainty in everything. We want certainty in making decisions. We want certainty in what's being told to us. And that was especially clear with the pandemic where a lot of things were uncertain and we needed to make decisions anyway. Yeah, and I think that is in a sense a lesson that should really be taught in, in schools from an early age. Because if you think about it, 
everything we teach our kids in school and to a certain extent even at home is that there is one correct way of doing things and if you don't do it that way you are incorrect and so again you remain with this uh, what you get out of that is uh, there is a correct thing out there that i need to figure out what it is but in some cases there isn't there are multiple correct things or maybe there are no correct things it's just we just don't know and that's something I find I have to spend a lot of time in my college students training them out of because they often want to know what is the right answer? What answer should I be putting down to get full points? And it's very difficult to, I understand why we do that. We, we do this um, training them to tell us what the correct answer is because back before the internet, we had, um, there were limited sources of knowledge. And so there wasn't a way to figure out what the consensus was or to probe um, the data out there to see what the consensus might be. You need to find the one expert that have the time and the resources to do it and ask them what the answer was and they would tell you. But what we really haven't done and what we haven't adjusted in the last two decades is since the advent of the internet is training people to deal with uncertainty and to have humility when they come up to new information and understand that it's always in a state of flux. So yeah, yeah. do you have solutions for that? Quick, five oh, seconds yeah. to fix uh, all of science education. Well, I don't think I have solutions, but I think in part, part of what could help is helping, talking about it, I think it helps and also making sure that people realize that there are different levels of conversations that need to happen at different uh, ages. When you, know, when you have a six-year-old, sure, you tell them this is how you do things because the six-year-old needs to learn very quickly how to cross the street so that they don't get run over. And so they need to know that they need to look left and right and that is it and then they can cross, right? There is a correct answer in that case. When you are older, then you can handle more complexity. And so you revise, uh, you know, everything that you were taught in a sense has correct or incorrect and you add the complexity layer of there are nuances. And so I think that's, that's the kind of conversation that would be good to have, which not always our school system, I think does, because even at the level of undergraduate, they're, like you were saying, they're being told, uh, you answer this, you get full points. You don't answer this, you get fewer points. So where do you think that conversation should start happening? At the undergraduate level or at the high school level? I think at the high school level. Because at the high school level, they can already handle some uncertainty, not everything, of course, but some, some uncertainty they can for sure. So I think it should happen at the high school and then be reinforced strongly at the undergraduate level, especially as they move across the different uh, years of undergraduate. Yeah, I think about, you know, bio, bio 101, the first biology course that freshmen take, that is a kind of basic and simple, right? The DNA is a double helix, so that's all you ever hear. You get to bio 400 when you are a senior, yes, DNA is a double helix, but sometimes it falls as a quadruplex. There are other complexities that come into play, so that's when you bring the, the difficulties in. Okay, that I did not know. 
think that should be another discussion. But it also sounds like we should get a high school uh, teacher in here to uh, have those uh, conversations as well. I think it would be nice to have that uh, that perspective. Yes. All right. We'll see if we can find someone that I don't call by just their last name because I'm still intimidated by my high school teachers. <laughs> it's okay. They can't give. They can't fail you anymore. So you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I think that is a good place to end. So thank you so much for joining us. We will uh, see you next time. Well, we'll hear you. You'll hear us next time. Yes. Yes. We will uh, be in touch with our next episode. <laughs> yes. We need. We need a better sign off. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>